0: Well, Peter and James and John got to really experience exactly what I just asked you all to imagine. They had a, a, a picture of front row seats, and it's been days since Jesus had promised, him, uh, promised them this stunning statement, the stunning statement of this, that you will not taste death until you see a foretaste of the glory of my kingdom picture just if you heard that would you really believe that okay yeah sure Jesus I'm gonna see a taste of your kingdom here in first century Jerusalem in Galilee really and you might you might think and, and you might think oh Jesus you were you were just saying something and it was it was really empty But Jesus is not in the business of making empty promises. Jesus now takes up his disciples to this high mountain. um, And it it took so long. The travel time took about six days. And so they're going to witness something that was just unforgettable. So incredible. It will be seared on their minds forever. Um, Some people say it's Mount uh, Tabor, which is south of Galilee. But it would have been a roundabout way to go about um, from where they were in Caesarea Philippi all the way to Capernaum. And honestly, it's not very high at all, um, although it's higher than any hill here in, Tex- in uh, Houston, at least. Um, it's about 2,000 feet. Uh, Mount Hermon is also uh, probably the-, the go-to when people think about that. It's, it's high, it's 9,200 feet, but it's so cold. Um, at the summit, it's unlikely to be the, t- the place to spend the night. Mount Myron is also an option, and it's the highest mountain within Israel. But either way, the point is, is is that whatever mountain it was, it took about six days, and Jesus' purpose was privacy. He only took, as you see, his inner three, his closest three, which is Peter, James, uh, which is not his brother, and John. And at this point, the disciples may have been just troubled. Maybe they were just disillusioned. Maybe they were feeling like, man, is this really going to come to pass, that thing that Jesus said six days ago? Especially, though, this magnificent experience would just become so life-giving and be such a help to them, especially as they would soon go through persecution themselves that that there is in the midst of their pain and their brokenness and suffering that there is glory that's awaiting them and so as the suffering messiah had suffered and was killed they also knew that their suffering uh, would give way to glory and it would give them a greater sense uh, of worship of jesus one who would submit who was great and grand yet would submit himself to death even death on the cross if it were to bring us to god and so Matthew just gets to the point right here. He says in no uncertain terms that Jesus was transfigured before them. He doesn't give in any, any explanation and just it just begs the point that it just it, it, this event happened and it didn't need any words. Inwardly the nature of Jesus changed. And he shed the human, the humanness of his own appearance, his ordinary clothes, and it was all shed, and the veil was taken off, and all you see is the brilliance of the Lord Jesus gleaming in its all of his dazzling glory and power and majesty. You are enveloped into this. His glory has eclipsed everything and overpowered everything to the point that Jesus, he is the one that is high and lifted up. His glory is right there on this mountain. And Jesus is not reflecting the glory. We know that this happened to to Moses, right? When he saw the glory of the Lord and the glory of the Lord shown on his faces, on his face, it wasn't his glory. He was reflecting that glory. It was, he was reflecting the glory, and yet when he came down the mountain, the glory of the Lord um, was still beaming, but it was slowly fading. And so Moses reflected the glory of God, but his was transient. His was temporary. It no longer came um, after he came down the mountain, but the effect of Jesus and his holiness and his radiance Was this impenetrable glory? And in that moment, they saw what I think all of us long to see, and it is literally not just a glow in the dark Jesus experience. Um, My son just got glow in the dark uh, planets and universes and galaxies, Um, and um, uh, they and they didn't really glow. <laughs> you know, it's like you had to go like literally in the dark. There's nothing at all, like in the closet to be able to see like a little faint glimmer um, of, of something, of the planets. Um, and this is not a glow in the dark, but Jesus' dazzling brilliance goes much further. It says the scripture said that he had turned uh, white as light. And it's, you got to think about this. This is more than just the color. This is literally something that of Jesus, of who he is, that just changed, right? His dazzling brilliance goes more than just being the color whites, just being something that, that comes out of a washer and a dryer and, and that, you, that you just bleach something white. This is something that even goes beyond that. This is Matthew, this is his best attempts at showing the very glory of the Lord Jesus. Elijah and Moses were representative of the entire Old Testament, um, as we see here. Um, It's missing the wisdom literature, but whenever they talked about the law and the prophets, um, that was just a common phrase, summarizing the whole of the Old Testament. And so the presence of Elijah and Moses was symbolizing the fact that there was the entire unity of the scriptures all pointed forward to one name and one person, and that was Jesus Christ. And in all of its summation, all of its consummation, all of its conclusions, all of the beginnings, and everything was wrapped in to Jesus the Messiah. Now, you always wonder, think about, you know, how you would actually, how you would actually react if you were actually there. Um, and so what we see of Peter, probably, you know, if we were really honest, probably we would say something to that level of where there would be so much amazement and joy and, like, just kind of sheer sheer lack of wisdom, right? And so in his haste, he wanted to erect three memorials or shrines. Now, the fact that he wanted to respect and, and, and worship um, Jesus and Elijah and Moses wasn't necessarily wrong, but what he was trying to do is that he did not elevate Jesus' greatness above the others. In a sense, he just wanted to honor all three of them on equal levels. And so Jesus didn't want that. He didn't want that reverence because he doesn't answer to any human being. He's not on equal playing fields with people as big as Moses and Elijah. I mean, these are big time prophets, but he doesn't share the glory or even the reverence due to these men. He's definitely on a higher plane. And so Jesus obviously didn't want it either. He just, uh, he apparently doesn't even respond to Peter's offer and instead a bright cloud just overshadows them and a voice the voice of the God the Father thunders from the cloud. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. If you remember, that's the same thing that Jesus said or that was said of Jesus at his baptism. The clear command in this passage, one that I think we all need to take pause and stop is first beholding Jesus that he is the Son of God high and lifted up and that God is so pleased he you can even say he is he is delighted in by his father he is loved by his father everything that the father thinks about of Jesus is just unparalleled joy and delight. And so listen. The scriptures say it's in the present imperative keep on listening to him or always listen to Jesus. Jesus is just not a voice of many other voices, Jesus is the voice. Jesus is elevated above. Even the greatest of heights of even the ones that summed up part of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, which is a credible paradigm shift in the Jewish mindset where there was the other way around. They elevated the words of human beings, namely Moses and Elijah. And now Jesus is saying, let he who has ears, let him hear. Then to top it off, not only do they see Jesus was fully transfigured and Elijah and Moses appeared, but there's this cloud of, um, as the scripture is called, Shekinah glory, the glory of God, the weight of God. The power of God, the majesty of his presence, the thundering uh, power and, and, and sense of his presence had appeared in dazzling array, and how incredible it would be to see all that, and then to hear the Father coming out of a thundercloud, and how red-faced you would be if you were Peter, and you, you hadn't even stopped talking. God rebukes you out of a cloud. <laughs> I mean... I'd be red-faced if I was Peter, and I'd probably be in that same position. I'd probably say something like that. And the disciples are just absolutely terrified. They just fall face down in the dirt. They were so scared. But the moment, um, along with the real sense of, worship, of, of fear, was a sense of worship. This is not the sense that God the Father was out to slam Peter or was going out to vindicate or just like give it to Peter because Peter was such a a bonehead disciple. That's not biblical fear. It's a sense where, that's a sense that's more reflective of other religions, of other faith journeys. It's a sense in which God is a capricious, angry, vindictive God in which he has good days and he has bad days and most of the time he has a lot of bad days. And I just wanna say that's not our God. That's not our Father. That's not um, Yahweh. Biblical godly fear is motivated by love and displayed in reverence. One that says, God, you are absolutely holy. I don't even begin to think that I could even deserve to be in your presence, God, without having my life and my heart being completely undone because of me, a sinner, But yet, God, you are a great saver. And because you could have crushed me, you could have destroyed me in my sin justly. God, you have taken upon all my sin and the world's sin and everything upon yourself, Jesus. When you took upon the cross of Christ and you forsake willingly the Father's fellowship and unparalleled delights, so that you can be, that Jesus can be the sin bearer, that he could take upon my sin, and that he could wipe away my guilt and wipe away my shame, so that I can just be with you. I can be with you, God, because you are you because of Jesus. Lord, I worship you. Come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, God, our Maker. Lord, you are so holy. The mountains tremble before you. The mountains melt like wax before you. But Jesus, at your right hand, is the fullness of joy and the fullness of love. And at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. The fear that the scriptures speak about is one with gravity and also with gladness. Gravity in the weight of the glory of God, knowing that our sin crushed us, but Jesus was crushed instead, but also one that erupts in praise with joy to our Father, the one who's engineered it all, redemption plan, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were together in this redemption plan to save us, to redeem us for his glory and for our joy. And I just love this, Psalm 103. This God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear. I love how in this narrative, the father says no more. We assume the cloud comes up, Jesus comes and touches them, and he says, rise, Peter, get up. It's okay, have no fear. James, get up. Do not be afraid, have no fear. John, get up. It's okay, have no fear. Isn't that incredible? I mean, I, I think all of us would be shaking in our boots. We'd have lost our lunch. You've been rebuked by the king of the universe. And yet Jesus, knowing the suffering, he will endure at the cross. He comforts their disciples, his disciples. Yeah. He knows that even their sins, even their sins of presumption and speaking out of turn and elevating man to the same level as Jesus, were to be forgiven. And they can only see Jesus. The scriptures actually say that. It says, um, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. Verse eight, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Oh, that's just pregnant. That's just full of meaning. No more Elijah and Moses, no more cloud of glory, no more Shekinah glory. All those things had vanished. But everything, the only thing was Jesus and his uniqueness, humanity in simplicity. Then Jesus tells us something that's strange to us. Looking back in the scriptures, it says, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? You know, um, Jesus probably... Jesus tells these disciples to not say anything, which completely just goes way against what we would do. We would tell everybody, we'd post it on everything, we'd tell, we'd be, everybody would just hear it until the point that people would just be like, whoa, stop talking, right? Why would you refuse to share the identity of the very Messiah that you've been waiting for for centuries? Jesus probably knew this, The disciples had like a zillion questions going on in their minds and going on through their heads. But they also, he also knew that they were probably misguided in their thinking. They wanted a conquering king. They wanted a, a, not a suffering messiah. They wanted a, a, a powerful Elijah. They expected Elijah to come back at the same time the messiah. Then they would join forces and then they would destroy their enemies and establish the kingdom of God and, and that be that. And so they were looking for a powerful conquering hero. They knew that if word got out that Jesus was talking to Elijah, that Jesus would be lauded and applauded for all the wrong reasons. But Jesus had a specific mission, which was to suffer, to be arrested, to be crucified, like a common criminal. He was called to be a rebel against Rome, sentenced to a gruesome death so that he can die for our sins and rise again. That's what the scriptures, that's what the law, the prophets, and even the wisdom books had all pointed to. And everywhere in the scriptures and Jesus knew that that was his mission and he knew that disciples could immediately get off that track and see that vision and get people to join them in this religious war uh, with the Zealots against the Romans and he, so he knew not to gain control politically or to grab and do a power grab that was not in the cards and so as the vision comes and goes we know that their minds were filled with so 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 many questions but that's where the disciples asked hey Was my conception of the kingdom right? Is it right that the scribes, what they're teaching, that Elijah had to come? And it's cool because Jesus says, hey, you guys got it. You guys are on the right track. Yeah, Elijah is going to come. In fact, he has come and restored all things. And this was a prediction from Malachi 4, 6. The only thing that Jesus was trying to show them was that his glory would come through another way, namely his suffering and his death. Just as Elijah was mistreated, and he was uh, endured suffering at the hands of, um, uh, of the people of his day. So in the same way, Jesus would receive the same mistreatment. As the forerunner would suffer at the hands of the ones whom he tried to serve, so would the Messiah also expect to receive no better. And then at the last part, verse 13, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. To show that, They had an understanding of who Jesus was. Was it complete? No, but it was becoming complete. It was coming together. And even though Jesus was very clear on what he came to do, they had just come this far to figure out what John the Baptist came to do, which makes you realize maybe how far off they were of fully understanding who this Jesus is. And as I've been reflecting on this passage, I think the one thing that has been hitting me about is this, simply this, is we so often think that we are in a position of strength where really we should be in a position of weakness. And we, we really should um, be forced to look at this passage and ask ourselves, what would it really look like What would it really look like to be a needy, desperate sinner? Just like what uh, Jake was talking about last week at communion and and, um, at our encounter service and how he said the only requirement is that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That's been resonating in my mind and also as I've been looking and thinking through this and praying through this passage of what would it be like to behold Jesus Can you think with me for a little bit? What would it really be like if I really believe that the Jesus of the scriptures is with me? When Jesus said at the end of Matthew 28, 19 through 20, and he said... Surely, you know, go, you know, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And we focus on the doing part, which is, you know, it's, it's something we need to do. But, you know, at the very end of that, as he says that, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them, and baptizing and teaching them all that I've commanded to you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age what would it really look like if I really went in my daily life and I knew that Jesus was there right in front of me? What if I really was so captivated by the presence of Jesus Christ, the Lord Almighty, the Son of God, and I, I just I let him envelop me, I let him capture me again like I once did, and, and, and I, I just said, God, you... Jesus, you are my life. You are everything to me. What would it look like when you have had an encounter with Jesus? Have you ever had those times in worship where you're just singing, and then the next thing you know, you're just, you're choked up with tears. Like, you can't even move. You can't even breathe even you're just you just have this sense of god the father just loving you and you have to kind of convince yourself like oh i need to sing i need to sing and oh i hope nobody's looking at me because i'm <laughs> i got streams of of water going down my eyes and and yet you are just struck by the nearness and the love of god when was the last time you were so convicted and struck with fear in the presence of the living god not unbiblical fear, but a biblical fear that you are broken over your sin. And yet you are captivated, like the song says, that his mercy is more. It just got me to thinking, what if my time was spent beholding Jesus more? And what would it look like in my preaching? What would it look like in my teaching? What would it look like in my pastoral ministry? What would it look like in my family? As I'm waking up in the morning, what would it look like at breakfast time? What would it look like as I'm shopping and going for the fifth time to Home Depot or H-E-B because their pickup order wasn't ready? Um, What would it look like? Do people really see? Can they see the presence of Jesus in my face? Can they really see that I've encountered the living God? How will that affect the way that I share the Jesus? How would that affect the way that I approached people? How would that affect how I would share with strangers? Can they just tell? <laughs> you know, sometimes as a speaker, you, can, you, can, you think you can say something to, to change something, someone's life. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe like Eddie in the back, you, you might say something that actually Eddie would actually Instagram or put on Facebook or something. Um, yeah. And uh, you'd be like, oh, wow, that was so profound, right? And, and, I, <laughs> and I, I praise God, not that I'm looking for that, but I praise God because sometimes God is in the past, has, has used preaching um, that you've encouraged me, and he's used so many of you at fairly timely places just to encourage me at the deep, deep level. And some of you may not even know. And to be honest, I think there's some things which I've shared and on the pulpit and I, I've shared and I didn't, I didn't even script it. I can't even take credit for whatever I said because it was just, I felt like it was the Spirit of God. I remember a month ago at the time, I felt really humbled and impressed to spend time um, instead of preaching, just to pray, to pray at the beginning of the Russia and Ukraine crisis. And I think we spent more of our time praying for Ukraine and then by the time Eddie, you know, Eddie was like, hey, it's 6 to 5, it's time to leave. Um, you know, I preached maybe like four minutes, like the shortest sermon um, of my life. And some of you are like, oh, I wish you would preach more, uh, less of that, you know. And, which is humbling because I didn't get to preach the sermon that I wanted to preach. But after that, it seemed like God was saying, everybody was just saying like, God, God was moving. And it was so powerful. And, and, and I got to experience the Lord. <laughs> And I was like, oh, great, thanks. (laughs) You know, know, I didn't really, I preached like four minutes. I should do that more often. But you know what's comforting because in the scripture, the sermon, the Father's sermon, uh, you know, in, in the transfiguration is like nine words. And that was it. Yet the gravity, the holiness of the Father was imprinted onto the lives of those three apostles. You know, God sometimes thinks, or sometimes we think that God wants us to have a bunch of mountaintop moments. And I, I do pray for those. I do hope that we do have those mountaintop moments. And, but at the same time, I'm just thanking God. The more I'm just saying, God, will you just speak to me in the mundane? Will you speak to me when I'm doing chores? Lord, will you speak to me in the quiet when I do have quiet? Will you speak to me when I'm changing diapers? Lord, will you speak to me when I'm tempted to get angry at my kids? God, just speak to me. I just want to hear your voice. I want to know you. I want to see you. I want to I I hear your voice, God. I want to behold you more. And you know, it was in the time of just yesterday where I just got to spend some time after like just a nonstop day and just spend time with my guitar in the quiet and just sit on the sofa and just go back, listen to some worship initiative and just Worship. And that was just an incredible time. It was not a mountaintop experience. It was not one of those things that, yeah, I say that the Spirit of God just enveloped me in the cloud, but it was God himself speaking to me. And I don't want those moments. And I think you do too. And I think he doesn't want us to be seared just by mountaintop moments because sometimes we think we've missed out. But Peter himself, when he's much older, Says this in 2 Peter 1 16 through 20 that yes, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty, but yet we have a prophetic word that is much more sure. One uh, that is like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in its place. And later on, we see that's the scriptures. We have the prophetic word much more true. We have the scriptures right in front of us. a treasure trove of God's goodness, of his redeeming acts in history, and yet he wants to invite us into that every day and experience the joy and experience it afresh. And so I wonder if today we could just sit in the presence of a glorious Lord and just listen to him. I'm just gonna invite... um, Just this time of silence is, you know, have some um, Isaiah come up and, but just really spend some time. I just want to stop talking and I just want to spend time with the Lord and allow us to even, maybe for the first time, to sit in the presence of a glorious King and that we would really have the expectation that the Spirit of the Lord Jesus would just speak to us just like the morning dawn that rises from our hearts, and just like the dawn of morning's light that fills the window. So um, let's all, let's all um, wherever you are, wherever you feel comfortable, whether you wanna kneel, whether you wanna just sit, um, just invite you to come before the Lord. And I wonder if, first of all, that you can just say, Jesus, meet me in this present, in this time. And secondly, I just, maybe you can just be aware, just like the disciples were reminded, that our expectations of how he will move works in a different timetable and in different ways. The disciples wanted a glorious conquering king, but yet Jesus just trying to tell them that your ways are not my ways and your thoughts are not my ways. I'm gonna speak more through suffering and struggle more than perfect, immutable plans. So maybe if there's any ways in which, as you sit, spend time just beholding him, beholding his presence, and then take a moment and just ask him, Lord, is there anything you want to interrupt me today? Is there any way in which your plans are greater and mightier, and yet I'm not believing it? Lord, I just need your spirit to speak to me this time. So let's do that for the next few minutes, and then I'll transition to a time of post-sermon prayer.